From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm Stella Bugby, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. This week, I'm filling in for Molly again while she's off writing a brilliant article for the magazine. And while I'm here, I'm talking to some women I admire for our series, How I Get It Done. It's about ambitious women and how they live. How they deal with their inboxes, people's feelings, their grocery shopping, their morning routines. What do they know that we don't? What do they do that we can steal? It's part advice column, part love letter, part voyeurism. I first met Brittany Packnett when I was sitting next to her on a long plane ride. She was warm and funny and full of really good tips for how to pack a carry-on bag. Brittany grew up in Missouri, not far from Ferguson. And in 2014, when Michael Brown was shot by Ferguson police, Brittany joined the protests. She became a leader in that demonstration, a strong voice against police brutality. She has a way of talking about these things that's clear and compassionate and makes people sit up and take notice. And people definitely did take notice. When the governor of Missouri set up a commission to examine racial inequalities in the area, he asked Brittany to join. And when President Obama set up his task force on 21st century policing, Brittany got a call from the White House. Obama has said that Brittany's voice is going to make a difference for years to come. Since then, she's used that voice to speak all over the country, calling out inequality again and again. If there's such a thing as a celebrity activist, Brittany is it. But it didn't start with Ferguson. Brittany told me that she was raised by parents who took social justice very seriously. When she was just a baby, they put her in a stroller and wheeled her to protests. And it didn't take long for her to start organizing protests of her own. So the very first protest I ever organized myself was when I was, I think I was nine or ten, and there were no Black Santas in the mall where we were shopping in St. Louis. And I was like, okay, we're coming here and buying all of these presents. But I have never in my, you know, ten years on this earth (laughs) seen a Black man in a Santa Claus suit. And I just don't understand why, because so many of my heroes, so many of my role models were Black. And so I asked my dad about it, and we had a conversation. He was like, well, what do you want to do about it? So we put signs in the hands of, like, my cousins and (laughs) my friends and his church members, and we marched in the St. Louis Galleria, and we got ourselves a Black Santa. Like, the news came, the whole nine. So there was this moment for me when I was very young where I realized that ordinary people can say the truth out loud and in public, and that in and of itself is an act of protest. And that's really what protest and activism is. It's it's speaking the truth out loud and in public wherever you are. After initial success, like your first taste of success with activism, mm-hmm. um, that is not always the experience that people have as activists. And you've obviously been protesting things like Ferguson, and you were early to arrive there. How did it feel to be there? I mean... It felt dangerous and righteous and scary and like I had no other option. My first day of protest was August the 10th. I was out of town on August the 9th, went home early on August the 10th. And so the second day of that uprising, I was there because I had to bear witness to what was happening in my own community. And I couldn't get that through a television. I couldn't get that on Twitter. I had to physically be present. Brian Stevenson, who is an incredible lawyer and human rights activist and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, I heard him speak years ago on the concept of proximity. And what his work helped me really remember in that moment is that you can't solve problems that you're not close to, and you cannot 
work in alliance with people that you do not know. I'll never forget being on the street in front of the Ferguson Police Department on August the 10th. The prayer vigil had just ended. People were starting to sit in on the street. I watched a young woman and I, and I filmed it, essentially say to the deputy police chief, the people who keep ending up being harmed by this are not people who look like you. They're people who look like me. They're my cousins. They're my brothers. They're my aunts. They're my uncles. And so this is why we are out here. This is why we're not going home. And she was full of clarity and passion. And I wanted, I, wa I was really hoping that he just was going to get what she was saying. And when she was done, he backed up and I, I looked at him and I said, you know, why have you approached a community that is clearly in grief with such disdain? Why did you bring German shepherds, for example, into a Black community knowing the history of the civil rights movement in this country? And he looked at me and he said, did anybody die? And I was like, good God almighty, if that is the standard, then like, you are you are articulating right now the exact problem that we have. And I said to him, I said, actually, somebody did die. His name was Michael Brown Jr. And that's why we're not going home. And then I turned and I took my cell phone and, you know, started to film other things and bought folks some water and stayed for a few hours and then came back the next day. So it felt, it felt like even with all of the risk, even with all of the folks who called us thugs, even with all the tear gas, even with all the pepper spray, even with all of the times of running for our lives, even with all the nights where we did not know if we were going to make it till the next day, that there was no other place for me to be. That was it. This leads into actually a, a question I have for you, which is about grief. And, you know, so much of, of the Black Lives Matter movement is spurred by grief. And how has that shaped you as a person? Um, and how does, like, what role does grief play in your life and work? Oh, wow. Um, so I lost my dad when I was 12. He passed away from congenital heart failure. I was 12. My younger brother was seven. My mom was in her 40s. And my mom, by training, is a social worker. She's a just a brilliant woman and has been the most important role model in my life. But what it meant was that even at the age of 12, losing my dad, we had lots of conversations about how I was holding the grief, about how I was experiencing it. And I was like a daddy's girl, right? So, so much of my activism, the way that I speak, like everything is just really modeled after him. And it was devastating for me. But at the age of 12, my mom really helped me find language around that grief and helped me tap into it and not be afraid of the fact that it is unfortunately a factor of human existence, right? That everyone is going to experience grief and you can either run from it and let it catch you or you can build the container in which you want to hold it. And I started to develop those skills, I think, fortunately, very early in my life. So what that meant for me is that grief has always deserved and required an outlet, when I was younger, I would like, you know, write poems and write a lot about how I was feeling. The older I got, and especially when I think about the uprisings that we have seen across this country and the spirit of protest that we've seen revived from the streets of Ferguson to Baltimore to Palestine, um, are, um, are, yes, about people having a funnel for their grief, but grief 
only exists when you love the thing that you've lost, right? And so I don't like to think of the roots of this work as just being roots of grief, although they are. I like to think about this being rooted deeply in love. So we showed up on the streets of Ferguson and I continue to show up in this work every single day because I love my people, because I love my family, because I love my little brother Barrington and I don't want him to be an exception. I want the success he's found in his life to be the rule for other Black boys and girls. I love people, period. I want love to live out loud in policy. I want love to live out loud at the White House. I want love to live out loud at the Supreme Court. I want love to be felt in the everyday existence of people who have been cast to the margins of society. And that is why I'm willing to take tear gas for this. Like That is why you can call me all kinds of names on the internet. That is why you can send me the death threats because I love you enough to continue to fight for our collective liberation. On a really bad day, what is something you do? Let's say you did get a death threat. Like, how do you go home? What do you eat? How do you unwind from something like that? A lot of people actually don't know that I I had a set of death threats that were really, really terrible from someone that I actually went to high school with. So there were two, two and a half months where I had a bodyguard every day. He was driving me to work, driving me back. It was actually when Reggie and I first started dating. So like every first, all of our first dates were like me, Reggie, and Mitch, the bodyguard. Um, (laughs) That's terrible. I'm sorry to be laughing. It's terrible, but it's, I mean, part of what I do is try to find the joy in situations, right? So the good news is the person that helped me find the bodyguard knew who I would want to spend, the kind of person I would want to spend that much time with um, and found somebody who we now call Uncle Mitch because he just has also that much joy in his heart. Um, Is he coming to your wedding? He's coming to the wedding. Yeah, he's told, of course, (laughs) I was like, Mitch, I need your address. You have to go to the wedding. You've literally (laughs) been here the entire time. Um, So you you have to be there. Um, But I mean, but that's part of dealing with it, right? And I... I know that joy is a revolutionary act because it is part of how I survive. So yeah, so during those months, and it was it was right during the holidays too. So like people would send packages to the house and he had to open up every package. Someone from his team slept at the house every night. And it was a very intense ordeal. And it put people I love in jeopardy because, because this person and I had known each other for most of our lives. I didn't know if he was going to show up at my mom's job. I don't know if he was going to show up at... My brother's work, if he was going to show up at my office and put my staff in jeopardy. Like, there were just so many things that were running through my head. And I used to have this recurring dream that I would show up in court to finalize the restraining order, walk outside, and he would kill me. Like, that is, I dreamt that dream, like, every night for several weeks. And so I wasn't getting a ton of sleep, (laughs) as you can imagine. How do you pay for something like that? How do you, you know, that's a cost of doing business, obviously, but like that seems very, very difficult and expensive. How does, who covers that? It is expensive. Um, The good news is that I have some really great people in my life who were looking out and helped me cover those costs. Um, And like, I am forever indebted to those people. Like every, every time I see those folks, I'm like, you saved my life. Coming up after the break, the life hack I now swear by, thanks to Brittany. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. This week, 
Brittany Packnett is telling us how she saves her sanity while she's trying to save the country. Is there a time where you say to yourself, I'm done for the day and it's my time now? Yeah, I mean, so I'm getting married in a few months, which means that sometimes I am saying I'm done for the day and sometimes my fiance is saying you need to be done for the day. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Every other Friday, we like to go and do karaoke at this place. It's like in a basement. We call it the Auntie Emporium because it feels like this is where all the aunties go (laughs) to like kick back on a Friday (laughs) after work. But I mean, it is a place where all of our friends hang out and we just go and have a good time, eat some wings have a couple of drinks, sing some songs, and it is the most, it's just the most carefree few hours. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? I do have a go-to karaoke song, and it is, (laughs) well, honestly, it depends on the, it depends on where I am. If I am at a more mainstream karaoke place, my go-to song is Journey, Don't Stop Believing, because I just love that song. But at the Auntie Emporium, where we go every other Friday, my go-to karaoke song is... (laughs) It's Patti LaBelle and Michael McDonald on my own, (laughs) which is one of the greatest R&B duets of the 80s. It is, I still remember the video and like watching it on this tiny television in the kitchen when I was growing up in St. Louis. And I've always loved Patti LaBelle's voice, but there was just something about the video that captivated me when I was a kid. And it is the most dramatic, (laughs) like breakup song ever. And, you know, Michael McDonald's voice is legendary, too. So um, I just, I love that song. I find it hilarious. So do you do you sing both <laughs> parts or do you just when sing When I'm by one? myself, I sing both parts. And that song <laughs> will pop up in my head all the time. So there's, you know, you could pass me in the airport and I could be singing it to myself. But um, usually my fiance is there. And so he'll usually sing the the man's part. Although Michael McDonald sings in a far higher register than Reggie can. So <laughs> it, that's always fun. So I have a question actually about your public persona, as you mentioned on Instagram and, and keeping it authentic. And obviously I follow you. So I'm familiar with your singing. And in addition to being incredibly socially active, you're like quite joyful and you're living your life in a very celebratory way. Is that a conscious decision you've made to kind of mitigate some of the difficulty of the subject matter that you engage in on a daily basis? Oh, yeah. I um, Every time I decide to have a laugh or smile about something or, you know, admire some flowers on the side of the road or just do something that has pure entertainment value, I am bucking systems that don't want me to exist or to thrive. So I, I don't know if it's how much I would describe it as a conscious choice as much as I would say that it is, joy is deeply ingrained in who I am. And so like, if you follow me, then you're going to get all of that and then some. (laughs) So when I met you, we were sitting on an airplane and you (laughs) pulled out a pair of compression socks. I did. You did. And you said, I cannot live without these compression socks. I'm on airplanes all the time. (laughs) I'm a very old lady when I travel. (laughs) Well, by the way, I bought the same compression socks immediately after meeting you. Because I, yeah, I like, I own six pairs of compression socks now. Because Your circulation is very important, so you cannot play with these things. (laughs) So since this is such a kind of nuts and bolts, you know, how I get it done is really just like a peek into how remarkable busy women live their lives. Talk to me a little bit about some of the more quotidian, how you get it done things. Like I I actually know you to be quite interested in fashion and skincare and things like that. (laughs) Um, 
What are and, some of the, the like nuts and boltsy things you do every day, like just detailed things? Because since I've bought your compression socks, I now trust you as a an influencer. Listen, I'm I'm trying to tell you, I only give people advice about the things that I am sure. I'm sure about compression socks. I'm also <laughs> sure um, I, routine really matters for me because everything else is so dynamic in my life. So I love fashion and there are certain times where I have a uniform, right? So kind of Monday through Friday when I'm working from home or, you know, when I have meetings around the city that I can be more casual. Right now, my uniform is high-waisted bell-bottom jeans because they're back. And I thought that being somebody with an hourglass shape, I'd look ridiculous in them. And then I tried on a pair from Free People and then I bought four pairs that day. <laughs> the same pants? Like in different colors, but yeah. The yeah. Same pants. <laughs> <laughs> so like, so flared jeans and like a, like a tucked in t-shirt. Because that the fewer decisions I can make that are unimportant, the more energy I have for making more important decisions. That also gives me so much more time to imagine what I'm going to wear for other things. So I just did BET Awards weekend. I did a panel and moderated a panel for them. I stole one of my fiance's camo jackets, which has some Malcolm X patches on it. And like cinched it with an off-white belt um, and like wore like a purple TB dress underneath it to a party with some chucks and had the best time of my life. And so like when I when I don't have to make decisions about what I wear every day, it's more fun to make decisions about what I wear on those special days or those days when, you know, dressing up is, is more fun um, and clothes are about fun more than just function. I care a lot about my skin, especially since I'm getting married. And so I definitely have routine for that in the mornings and the evenings and Travel sizes of all of those things have become very important. I have one travel bag of toiletries that sits under my sink and I pull it out maybe 48 hours before a trip or sometimes 24 hours because sometimes the trips are back to back. Make sure that everything in there is fully stocked. If it's not, I go to my linen closet where I've got doubles and triples of everything and pull out you know a new item so that I can restock in my bag. And I put that bag in my suitcase and I go. I also, I, I'm such a millennial in that I like, Uber Eats, DoorDash, Seamless, all of them. <laughs> I use them all the time. I kind of order from like the same five restaurants because I try, I try to eat healthy. So I like order poke more times a week than I should. I think I had poke today. I order like the same salad. Like I will just go into where you can say order again, press order again and just go. Because I know it tastes good. I know it's healthy. And I don't have to sit there and again, make decisions that are going to take more time and energy than I have to expend. So those are some of the more detailed things about my life that are that help me establish a sense of control and routine to free me up to do and decide the things that are more important. And I mean, I've got tons of travel hacks, right? It's the compression socks. I always travel with the heating pad. I fly Delta almost exclusively because then I know that there's going to be an outlet. I have clear and TSA pre-check. So in most cities, I can get through security in less than 10 minutes. Efficiency matters, especially in your personal life, so that you can be free to spend your time and your energy where it actually matters. Spending my time in a security line is just not a good, good use of my time. Were you always like that? Did you? I mean, I'm obsessed with efficiency, and I don't know where <laughs> it comes from. <laughs> I was, I'm, but like, I'm, yeah, I've had to become more obsessed with it because I have way more demands on me than I ever did before. I have more relationships and requests to engage with than I anticipated I would have at this point in my life. And at some point I realized 
The demands on my time outpaced my systems to organize them. So I just hired an assistant. And I avoided that for a long time because I was like, activists don't have assistants, right? And I think I was very... I was beholden to this perception that people have of folks who do justice work, that it, where everything is supposed to be scrappy and difficult and you're never supposed to sleep and you're hardly ever supposed to eat and your affairs are always supposed to be out of order. And that is, frankly, precisely how the opposition wins. And I think, you know, the first time I ever met with President Obama in the Oval Office, he talked about that quote from Dr. King, that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And he was like, look, this is, it's long. We need you in the work for the long haul. We need activists who are willing to tell the truth out loud in the public, people who are willing to put justice on the curriculum everywhere they go. We need folks like that for the long haul. This work is going to take years, decades, generations to get right. And in order to make my full contribution, I have to be here and be well to do it. That's it for this week's show. It's been a real pleasure filling in for Molly. She'll be back next week. She'll see you next Tuesday. Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by me, Stella Bugby, and Lynn Levy. Mixing by Emma Munger. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarlay, and Alexandra Sauzermonic. If you like the show, tell your friends to subscribe. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.